Take a Bible this morning, find John chapter 7. We're going to look at the end of John 7 this morning. I've been excited to talk about this passage with you this morning all week long. Most of our focus is going to be on verse 37 and 38, but we are going to look at what comes after at the end of this chapter. There's notes in the bulletin where you can follow along with what we're going to be talking about. This series is called Believe. That comes from the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where we read this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this morning we're going to talk about how are we going to respond to Jesus and the claims that he made about himself. And all of it is driving to this question, will we be people who believe, yes or no? And that's the big theme of the Gospel of John. That's the theme of this passage. At the end of John 7, we mentioned this last week, we're at a feast called the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. Everything in John 7 and John 8 takes place during the feast. I'm going to refer to it as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a feast that was celebrated in the fall. It was about a week-long celebration in Jerusalem. Many people would travel to the city. And when they traveled to Jerusalem, they would live in tents. And it wasn't because there weren't other places they could stay. It because that was part of the, the feast, part of the celebration, was living in tents, living in tabernacles. They were looking back and remembering that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And when they were wandering around in the wilderness, they lived in tents. And not only did they live in tents, but Yahweh himself, the Lord, lived among them in the middle of the camp in a tabernacle, in a big Tent. And so they're looking back and they're remembering God has saved us from slavery in Egypt. He's called us to be his people. They were also giving thanks. This was in the fall. The fall harvest had just come in. And as they lived in these tents and as they looked back to the Exodus, they were also remembering God has provided for us. Not just like he provided in the, in the wilderness with manna and with quail, but he's provided now in another harvest, and they were giving thanks for that. In some sense, it was the closest parallel to our Thanksgiving holiday, where we would look back and we would say, God has done these great things for us in the past. God has provided for us for another year. God is faithful. You may not go live in a tent this Thanksgiving, but you get the basic idea. All this taking place in Jerusalem. And just like our Thanksgiving celebrations... Over the years, different traditions grew up around the Feast of Tabernacles. The Old Testament said, you're going to observe this feast, and here's what you're to do. But there was other traditions that sort of developed up around it. And not all of them were bad. Some of them were really kind of interesting. And I want to tell you about one of those traditions. This tradition took place in Jerusalem during the feast each day of the, the week during the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And I put a, a basic map of ancient Jerusalem up here. The top circle is the temple and the temple complex. The bottom circle down uh, towards the, the bottom of the screen is the pool of Siloam, and you kind of went outside of a gate to get to this pool. Each day during the feast, the high priest led a procession, and he walked in the front of this procession carrying a golden pitcher, not like a pitcher you draw, but like a pitcher you carry water with, okay? 
And he's leading this procession, and they leave the Temple Mount, and they walk through the city, and they walk down to the Pool of Siloam. And when they get down to this pool, there was lots of superstition attached to this pool. We saw that earlier in John. But when they got down to the pool, he would dip down, he would fill the pitcher with water, then the whole group would turn around, and they would walk back towards the Temple Complex. And as they got close to the temple complex, people were singing. They were singing the Hallel Psalms, a group of psalms in the Old Testament. They were reciting a verse of Scripture. They were reciting this verse from the Old Testament, Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They were blowing the the ram's horn, the shofar. It was a big celebration. They're chanting this verse, the crowd is, and the high priest walks into the temple complex. He makes a lap around the altar, and then he pours this water out for everyone to see. And they did it every day. Day one, day two, day three. On the last day of the feast, they do the exact same thing. They walk down, they fill the pitcher, they walk back, reciting the same verse. Except this time, instead of one lap around the altar, they walk seven times around the altar, and he pours this water out. So you have the basic idea of one of these traditions taking place during this feast. And I just want you to look ahead at John 7, verse 37. You've got that picture in your mind, and this is what we read. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's kind of interesting. When you know what was happening at the feast, Jesus didn't just pull this completely out of the air. Everyone is watching all week long this procession take place, this tradition take place. On the last day, the great day of the feast, seven laps around the altar and they pour it out. And it's at this time that Jesus stands up and he doesn't say it quietly. He cries out, if you're thirsty, come to me. Not only will I satisfy your thirst, but out of you will flow rivers of living water. Now, in this passage, there's a few things I need to to point out to you before we really jump in. I want you to see some of these Old Testament scripture references that are taking place. Verse 38, Jesus mentions the scripture. He says, as it's written in the scripture. He may be referencing Isaiah 55.1, but it's not an exact quote, and you can look it up. And so he may be saying the scriptures say this broadly, generally. Like you or I might stand up and say, the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. And you would say, well, exactly which verse would you pull that from? And I would say, well, from lots of verses. This is a theme throughout the biblical revelation. That may be what Jesus is saying when he says the scripture says. Maybe it's a reference to Isaiah. Maybe it's just a general reference. He's not the only one talking about the scriptures. In verse 40, the people mention the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet. And it's a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses says God will send you another prophet and you need to listen to him. And then there's one more reference in verse 42. The people make mention of Bethlehem in connection with the scriptures. That's a reference to Micah 5.2 that says the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one would be born in Bethlehem. So you've got all these people referring to the Old Testament scriptures. They're all trying to put the pieces together about who Jesus is and what's being fulfilled. They're doing this water pouring ceremony and Jesus stands up to speak. And the big idea is really, really simple. Jesus invites all who are thirsty to drink. If you're thirsty, come to him. And he'll give you a drink. He'll give you living water. And I've included the reference to John 4, 
which we've already talked about. It's Jesus talking with the woman in Samaria at the well. And the parallel is too obvious to to just pass over. Jesus talks with this woman in Samaria, and this is part of the conversation in John 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Very close parallel to what Jesus says on this last great day of the feast. He stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. If you're thirsty, Jesus is offering you living water. That's the big idea. Let's read the passage, John seven thirty-seven, down through verse 52. Scripture says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some others said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we're thankful for this invitation. Those of us who are thirsty can come to you for a drink of living water. Father, what a remarkable invitation. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning as we think about the words of Jesus, just a few verses, to have eyes to see. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts to respond. I pray that we would walk away believing the truth about Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. I want to tell you a story about an invitation I received. This was in about 2010. We had just moved to Kingfisher, Oklahoma. I had just finished seminary the second time, and we were sort of settling in there at First Baptist in Kingfisher. And I got an email. It was from somebody that I'd never met before. I didn't know who they were. And it was an invitation. And the invitation I got through email was to come and speak at a conference. And it wasn't just, you know, some little rinky-dink deal. It was this conference in the United Kingdom. They said, we want you to come speak 
at this conference in the UK. And they had some information about the, the school I had gone to and my experience as a pastor. And they said, we think you would be great to speak at this conference. This came completely out of the blue. And I'd never been asked to do anything like this at all. And my first thought was, this can't be right. And then I read it and I thought, well, it sounds like they know about me. And then I kind of sat up in my chair in my office and I said, well, why wouldn't they want me to come speak at a conference? <laughs> I just finished two seminary degrees and I was pastoring this little bitty church and now I'm pastoring a little church, not little bitty, but little church. And, you know, I, I'm kind of a big deal. And I kept reading and I looked at the dates and I don't remember what we had that was a conflict, but we had some sort of family trip planned and I looked at the dates. It wasn't that far in the future, and I thought, no, I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, but, wow, that's pretty cool. And I kind of walked around with my chest stuck out that afternoon and felt pretty big about myself. I didn't go tell anybody. I didn't want people to think I was a braggart. But I was waiting for someone to ask, like, <laughs> hey, pastor, do you ever speak at conferences? Well, as a matter of fact, nobody asked, nobody asked. But I, I felt pretty good about myself, and I thought, man, this is, I'm, I'm just a big deal. I mean, what, what are you? And so I started thinking about it, and later that day or later that week, I don't remember exactly, but I got on Google, and I thought, oh, I'm going to look this church up and this pastor that invited me, and uh, how did they find me? And, you know, so handy-dandy Google, I get on there and type in this church and the name of the pastor, and that's where my chest sunk in a little bit and my shoulders slumped because about the first five results on Google were detailing a scam. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> so sad. Detailing a scam to get pastors to think they're coming over to speak at a conference. And the scam works like this. You start a fake church, step one. Step two, you plan a fake conference. Step three, you find some schmuck pastor who thinks he's a big deal, and you say, we want you to come speak at our conference. And he gets a big head and thinks, absolutely, I'd love to speak at this conference. And you start to work out the details, and you say, look, the way it works in the U.K. is you've got to send some money over. Now, I didn't get to this point, so don't think I'm too, I'm too gullible. But we need you to spend some money over for the visa and the travel arrangements. And if you'll book all your stuff, we'll reimburse you when you get here. And I'm reading through all these results of all these people been asked to speak at this conference. And I start asking some of my buddies, and they're like, oh, yeah, we got asked to speak at that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My point in telling you the story is not to make a point about the ego of pastors, although that's probably in there somewhere. My real point in the story is to say not all invitations are the same. Not all invitations are, we could say, created equal. And if you're a church member, you know this. I stand up at the end of the service and I make announcements and essentially I'm inviting you to participate in a number of things. And those of you who have a worn-out Medicare card, when I give the invitation for youth camp, you're probably thinking, nah, no, I'm not going to go to youth camp this year. It's probably not that appealing to you. If you're a parent, you know that not all invitations are the same. Sometimes your kid comes home with an invitation from school and little Susie or Johnny wants them to come to a party and you think, well, I don't even know little Susie or little Johnny. We don't know these people and... I don't want to go to the birthday party. So, sorry, son, we have plans that day. You can't go. And you look at that and you say, oh, I might go to a buddy's party, but eh, just one more thing on the calendar, you, you take a pass on it. 
not all invitations are created equal. Sometimes you get invited to something and it's of no interest to you, it's not important to you, and you just sort of let it slide. But sometimes you get an invitation that really is substantial. And I just want you to see how remarkable this invitation is in verse 27. Jesus says, he's inviting you, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. That's a remarkable invitation. And this is a part of the Gospel of John where there's not a whole lot of action. We saw the same thing the last couple of weeks. It's just kind of dialogue. It's just people trying to figure out who Jesus is. But in the midst of a a passage of Scripture where there's not a lot happening, there is a remarkable invitation being extended. And it's being extended to you this morning. If you are thirsty, you can come to Jesus and drink. Not only will he bring satisfaction to your soul in the deepest level, but out of you will come rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit not only will fill you, but flow out of you. And this morning, what I want to do with most of our time is just think about that invitation. We're going to get to how did everyone respond, and we're going to cover that very briefly. But with most of our time, I want you to think with me about this invitation. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus offered a remarkable invitation. And I'm inviting you to consider it this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to see. This invitation was open to anyone. It was open to anyone. There's an echo here that we've already seen in John 3.16. We read this in John 3.16 a few weeks back. We'll put it up on the screen. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And if you fast forward a few chapters to the bread of life discourse in John 6, Jesus says it like this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see the same idea in John 7, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, anyone, right? There's no fine print here. There's no asterisk here. There's no sort of exclusion clause that says, well, you got to be the right race, or you got to come from the right family, or you have to be from the right tribe in Israel. You got to have the right pedigree. You have to have the right education. You have to be good enough. He just sort of throws it open. This is for anyone and everyone without distinction. If you're thirsty, you can come and you can drink. Growing up, my dad Uh, raised me and my sister on classic rock music. And you don't get to quote many of those songs on a Sunday morning sermon. But there's a song I thought about this week as I was studying this. How many of you remember the five-man electrical band? Any of you have an album back at home? Yeah, nobody wants to admit it this morning. That's There you are, there in the back row. There you go. They're proud. How about this song from the the five-man electrical band, the song Signs? I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll just read it, okay? The sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. So I tucked my hair under my hat. I went in to ask him why. He said, you look like a fine, upstanding young man. I think you'll do. So I took off my hat, and I said, imagine that, huh, me working for you. Sort of captures the spirit of the 60s or the 70s on a number of levels. It really doesn't capture the spirit of John 7 at all. There's no sign on the door that says, you got to look like this. You've got to come from this kind of family. You don't have to sneak in. You don't have to tuck your hair up under your hat and come in and pretend like you're somebody you're not. This is open to anyone and everyone without distinction. 
There's no discrimination in who may come. Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Second, this invitation is for those who recognize their need. This is a non-negotiable prerequisite in responding to this invitation is that you recognize your need. It's not just for anyone. It's for anyone who thirsts and anyone who will be open enough and honest enough and vulnerable enough to recognize and confess and admit on a spiritual level, I am thirsty. What do you think are the most common words spoken in a church on a Sunday morning? I'm not asking you to answer out loud. I'm just asking you to think. I want to suggest to you that these are the most common words. Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm fine. How are you? Uh, Also fine. Fine. Pass the next person in the hall. How are you? Fine. You? Mm. Fine. I want to suggest to you there's something to be said at church for manners and discretion, right? I am certainly not suggesting that when you leave this room and you walk down the hall and somebody sets you up and they say, hey, how you doing? You don't need to tell them exactly how you're doing, right? You don't need to spill all of your mess. I don't know what kind of week you had, but we don't need to hear all of it. But on the back end of that, on the other side of that, can we just admit that we're not fine Isn't that why we're here in the first place? Isn't that why we get up in cold water in a baptistry in front of a bunch of people and get wet to say, I'm not fine. I'm needy. I'm a a sinful, broken person. Isn't that what we're saying when we take the Lord's Supper? We're not taking the Lord's Supper to say, I've been good enough and I've earned this over the last week or month or quarter or whatever. We're saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you just as much as I needed you on the day of my baptism. I need you just as much today as I'm going to need you tomorrow. I am a needy person. And on some level, we've got to be able to admit that, to just say, we're not fine. None of us. If you think you're fine, this invitation really has nothing to offer you. Jesus really isn't throwing anything out there for you. If you're not willing to say, I am not fine, I am spiritually thirsty, I am spiritually hungry, I am spiritually needy. The good news is not good news for you. It's it's nothing. Here's the good news. Jesus didn't come for people who are good, or maybe we should say think they're good. He didn't come for people who are not thirsty or not hungry, think they've got their act together spiritually. He came for people who would be willing to admit, I'm not fine. I'm a mess. I fought with my spouse on the way to church this morning. No, I'm not fine. I griped at my kids for something small or I didn't get on them for something big and I totally blew it as a parent. No, I'm not fine. How in the world are you fine? I am not fine. That guy at work or that lady that sits next to me at school, I've been meaning to invite them to church for months. I had a perfect opportunity this week. I didn't do it. I am not fine. You know what I did last night to get ready for Sunday morning worship? I binged Netflix with a tub of ice cream. I'm not fine. We're not fine. And the good news is Jesus came for people who can admit that. And there's good news. There's hope. 
for anyone who's thirsty, there's an invitation. So it's open to everyone without distinction. It's, it's for those who recognize their need. Number three, it's a call. This invitation is a call to believe. Jesus is calling you to believe. And this is not just good news. This is great news. Jesus isn't asking you to bunch, uh, jump through a bunch of religious hoops. He's not asking you to do a bunch of you know, spiritual type things. He's just saying the invitation is to believe. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You say, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, believe. Believe that I am who I say I am. Believe that I came to do what the Gospel of John says I came to do. To give my life as a ransom for you. To lay my life down for you. That the good shepherd would die for the sheep. That you could believe and have eternal life. Believe that. There's no charge. Right? There's no admission fee. It was not free to Jesus. It cost him his life. But for you and I, the gift, the invitation is without cost. There's no payment required. It's free. One of the commentaries I read this week was a guy named Matt Carter and Josh Redberg. They said it like this, Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants you. He invites you to come empty-handed to him, and when you do, you'll never be empty-handed again. That's good news. He's not telling you, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to pay. Here's how you're going to earn it. He just says, I want you, and I want you to come. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Recognize your need and believe. There's no payment. Look at the book of Revelation. This is our hope now and for all eternity. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment. You just believe. You believe. It's open to anyone. Right? There's no asterisk here. There's no fine print here. You've got to recognize your need, recognize your spiritual thirst. You've got to believe. Number four, this invitation promises satisfaction. Satisfaction. That's what Jesus was trying to say to the Samaritan woman. You're here getting water and you're going to come back the next day and the next day and the next day. I have living water. Right? I have something that will satisfy you, not just today, tomorrow, the next day, but forever. And that's what Jesus is promising to these thirsty people. They're watching this whole ceremony pour out. They're, they're quoting the verse of Isaiah, drawing water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus is saying, I have it. I have it. Come to me, admit your need. Come to me and believe. I have it. This water will satisfy you. This last week, Hunter had a birthday. I think he turned 38. Is that right? 38? I don't know where he's sitting. Maybe he's skipping church this morning. In the balcony. Youth pastor in the balcony. That's about right. So it was, it was Hunter's 38th birthday. Is that right? 38? Th okay. 33. And when it's your birthday on staff, you get to pick lunch. And so we were going to eat Monday, and Hunter originally picked KD's Barbecue, which was a great birthday pick, but they're closed on Monday. So we had to go to plan B, which was also a good pick. He picked Michael's Charcoal Grill in Midland. Been to Michael's? Really, really good. So Hunter and I are ordering together. I'm buying his lunch, and we order the exact same thing. Here it is, the flip-flop. 
Oh, man. That's life-size version of the flip-flop right there. Barbecue beef sandwich, a big old filet piece of sausage on top. We both got a big old side of French fries. We sat down, and I am not ashamed to tell you I ate every scrap of food on my plate, every French fry, every little sliver of beef, every piece of sausage, all the bun, barbecue sauce all over the whole thing. It was delicious. And I sat there at birthday lunch, and I finished that meal, and I pushed my plate away, and I thought to myself, I am so full. I don't need to eat again all day long. I really don't. This is enough caloric intake and enough salt to hold me over at least till tomorrow. I do not need to eat anything. And so I left, and in my mind, I'm thinking, that's it. I don't need to eat anything else all day long. So that evening, Emma had a game in Monahans. So we drove over to this volleyball game in Monahans. And uh, it was before dinner game, and so we're playing game, and I'm watching, and I'm thinking to myself, like, kind of thirsty. All that barbecue sauce and salt and sodium is kind of thirsty. I'm going to need a Coke before we go home. need a Diet Coke. There's a DQ right on the way out of town. I'll just stop at that DQ and get a Coke. And about halfway through the volleyball match, I started thinking, man, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> I'm kind of hungry. One of those chicken strip baskets would hit the spot, man. <laughs> chicken strips and a piece of toast and the gravy. and I get the kid's meal, the kid's chicken. That's all I need. I don't need much, but it sounds really good. So we get done with the game, and we're driving over to Dairy Queen, and we get up there to order, and I'm thinking the whole time, kid's meal, kid's meal, kid's meal. And then just out of my mouth, I want the six-piece. <laughs> I don't, just came out. And then Emma ordered, and then the lady looked at me, and she said, anything else? And I said, absolutely, I want a blizzard. <laughs> You've had that experience, right? Yeah, I saw some of y'all at the fajita cookout. And I bet you left thinking, oh, man, I'm stuffed. I bet you had breakfast Monday morning after all those fajitas. Look, our experience with physical hunger is kind of like what a lot of people try to do on a spiritual level, okay? They try to take everything the world has to offer and they just throw it at this spiritual hunger. They throw it at this pit deep in their soul and they're just trying to fill it up with anything and everything and they're just throwing it in there. And for a day, you might feel some satisfaction or maybe for a week, it's great or maybe a month, you're feeling all right. But in the end, you don't just end up empty. The irony of irony is, is, is that in the end, you end up emptier than you were to start with. And you can just keep throwing everything the world says is going to satisfy you and make you happy and bring you contentment. You can just chuck it in this bottomless pit. And you can know no true satisfaction. Or you can listen to Jesus when he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. I have something that will satisfy you. I have something that will not just satisfy you, but it will well up within you. This is not some cheap street drug with diminishing returns. The more you take, the more you need. It's something that provides true satisfaction to your soul. Last, this invitation promises overflow. It's not like it's just enough for you. It's not like it's just enough to fill you up. But Jesus actually says, if you believe in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. And John adds the note, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Not only will God come to live inside you and give you new life, but he will then flow out of you as you become a blessing to other people who are thirsty. What a remarkable thing. It's not like you just are going to have enough to be satisfied and you can kick back and put your heels up, but he's going to satisfy you and then he's going to give you so much that it's going to just overflow out of your heart and you then become a blessing to others. That's the invitation. How do you respond? I want you to think with me about what we read at the back half of this chapter. In the wake of the invitation, John John describes a number of different responses. We'll move through these quickly. Number one, some decided Jesus was the prophet. Number two, some decided Jesus was the Christ. That is, some of them are listening and they say, hey, Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be another prophet. This has got to be the guy. And some of them go even a step further and say, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Some of them jump all the way there and they say, this is the guy that God promised to send. Some decided Jesus was a man. That was Nicodemus. There's a sense in which Nicodemus puts his neck out on the line. He's sort of sticking up for Jesus, but he's not coming all the way out and saying what what Jesus really is, who Jesus really is. He's not saying he's the Christ. He just says, hey, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And he's a human being. He identifies him as such. Some recognize that Jesus had authority. That was the guards, verse 46 You'll remember our passage last week, these guards were sent to arrest Jesus, but it wasn't his time, it wasn't his hour, so no one lays hands on Jesus, and when they come back to the boss man, and the boss man says, where's Jesus, we sent you to arrest him and haul him in, they say, no one's ever talked like this guy. They recognized, whatever they did or didn't understand about Jesus, they recognized this man has authority unlike any we've ever seen before. Last, some saw Jesus as a threat. That was the Jewish leaders. And they've already made up their minds that Jesus has to die, and this just solidifies it a little bit more, hardens their hearts a little bit more. They see Jesus as a threat. If we don't deal with this man, Rome is going to come, and we're going to have a problem on our hands. He's going to expose us as hypocrites. This man has to be dealt with. So the prophet, the Christ, a man, he has authority, And he's a threat. Can I suggest to you that in another strange irony in this passage, all of those things are true? I don't mean that everyone in the story exactly understood who Jesus was and responded appropriately. I just mean that all of these things are true. He's the prophet. He's the one that Moses said would come. There's going to come another prophet and you're going to listen to him. He is going to speak for the Lord. Jesus was that prophet. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that God had promised for millennia to send. It's him. He was a man. John said that at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh. Eternal God took on humanity without ceasing to be God. In the mystery of mysteries, in the incarnation, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he became a man. He is human. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the very feast that these people were celebrating, the Feast of Tabernacles. They're looking back and remembering God lived among us in a tent, and right in front of their faces is God living among them as a man. He had authority. 
There's no denying that. John has told us over and over and over again, they didn't touch him, they didn't arrest him, they didn't kill him. Why? It wasn't his time. He's in complete control of all of it. He speaks with unmatched and unrivaled authority. He doesn't just say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And he is a threat. That may sound strange to you. That may be something that you don't think of when you think about Jesus. My point is this. Jesus did not come to live among us and give his life as a sacrifice on the cross so that we could self-actualize. He didn't come so we could just reach our highest potential and fulfill and chase all of our wildest dreams. If you listen to what Jesus said, he came that we would die to ourselves. That we would take up our cross daily and follow him. He is a threat. Not exactly the kind of threat that the Jewish leaders thought he was, but he is very much a threat. He comes and he sets before you this invitation and he says, you can receive this invitation, you can believe this good news, but you've got to recognize something first. You've got to recognize your neediness, your thirstiness, your hunger. You've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You've got to believe. That's the challenge this morning. That's the question set before me and before you and anyone who comes across this this story from Jesus' life. How will you respond? Will you believe? 